Mindfulness Mode 189. The more I surrender to the fear, the more peaceful I become. And the more peaceful I become, the more the activity of my life arises spontaneously and less driven by fear. Hey, Mindful Tribe, so good to have you with us again today. I'm Bruce Langford, Mindfulness Mode host and Mindfulness Life coach. Last time, I featured a guest who told his story of reaching despair and desperation in his life and then began to discover his own form of mindfulness on what he called prayer walks on a dark country road in Mississippi. If you haven't heard Dr. Phil Carson's story of how he rose back up to success, you may want to go back and check out episode 188. Right now, I'm building my Facebook group called Mindfulness Mode Group. It would be great to see you there. So check it out on Facebook, Mindfulness Mode Group, and just click for an invite and I'll uh, put you right into that group. My guest today, Mindful Tribe, is responsible for the divorce of hundreds of couples. He was a successful divorce lawyer until he realized he was more interested in keeping couples together and helping them strengthen their relationships than he was in cementing the divorce. I can understand how he must have felt. Now, he's a successful relationship expert with deep wisdom on the topic. This interview will intrigue you. Sit back, enjoy and just take in all the wisdom of my special guest today. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I have Eric Newton on the line today. Hey, Eric, are you in mindfulness mode? Oh, without question. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I knew it could be no other way. Well, so we might as well start with that, Eric. What does mindfulness mean to you? Uh, that's the fundamental question for your show, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Well, for me, mindfulness is a really the act of being present to what is. Mm-hmm. I hope that doesn't sound too mystical. It sounds I, very mystical. <laughs> <laughs> when I say that out loud, I always wonder how it reads for people. But uh, let me say it another way. For me, mindfulness is about allowing the world to be exactly as it is. Right. And it it didn't, this for me doesn't come about through some study, you know, some practice of reading about what mindfulness is supposed to be. You know, I didn't go after this because I was feeling stressed in my career and wanted to, you know, find another way to experience life that was more fulfilling. It just, uh, for me, this all came out of personal revelation and uh, that, which is another phrase that can sound a little bit mystical, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Mystical is fine. I have no problem with that. <laughs> but I, I do want to just take a second and share with Mindful Tribe a little bit about you as we kind of get started here. Eric Newton is a relationship guy. He formerly worked as a family law attorney and helped thousands of couples get divorced. As a result, Eric understands the nuts and bolts of relationships and their full life cycle from beginning to end. His expertise in relationships led him to team up with a psychologist friend to lead premarital courses for couples, offering them real life skills so they wouldn't need a divorce attorney. 
Eric's passion for helping couples get mindfully connected and ultimately build healthier relationships caused him to transition from law to working full-time, creating a place where couples can go for information, inspiration, and real truth. That place is an extensive online resource called Together, found on the web at together.guide. So, Eric, you've really made a cool transition. Thank you, my friend. It's the best thing I've ever done. I'll say that. Wow. Well, you've you've learned a lot, I'm sure, in the process. But when we talk about mindfulness and relationships, I'm sure to you there's a pretty close connection. Can you talk about that? Oh, well, sure. That's an interesting question. I mean, it's an obvious question for you, I suppose. Yeah, mindfulness and relationships. To me, relationships are our access to understanding who and what we are. You know, relationships aren't just, they aren't just the fabric of the human experience, though they are that. They're also how we know ourselves. You know, it's through relatedness. It's through duality, really, that we experience who we are and we have experience. You know, the experience itself is rooted in interaction with the other and and, and and so starting from the biggest picture answer to your question, when when I think about what mindfulness is, as I said at the beginning of the show, it's allowing the world to be as it is. You know, mindfulness is awareness of what is so and then allowing it to be so. And from that comes um, joy and peace and presence, all of these things that we're after, these feelings that we're after. And in the human relationship context, everything springs from allowing the relationship to be exactly as it is, starting from that place. That's how we see ourselves and know ourselves. And that's also how we impact our relationships and create change is by starting with allowing them to be exactly as they are. Yeah, allowing is really such a central word to all this. Yeah. It really is. And I know that you talk about awakening, that we need to awaken ourselves. And to me, that is part of mindfulness, is being aware or being awakened. How can we really wake up and enjoy our intimate relationships even more? The short answer is be present to our fear. Uh, you know, the... That's the quick answer. The, right. the way to the access to awakening is to get in touch with what we're scared of and how that drives our behavior. Mm. You know, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Yeah. So so we have to understand what our fears are first before we can do that. Right. Yes. You know, I, the fun thing about fear, if I may put it that way, is that it's so ever present for a human being, you know, I, uh -huh. for myself, I, you know, I can speak for myself. I'm not a scared person. I'm actually a pretty confident person in life. And I, I, I walk through the world with a, a, a good degree of solidity and self-assurance. That said, when I become very quiet and still and present to my own experience, I notice that underlying most of my decisions and behaviors is some kind of an abstract concern, some kind of of an abstract fear or anxiety 
And, you know, usually we don't call it fear, but really there's an avoidance mechanism. There's something we're trying to resist. You know, we're just resisting bad feelings. It could be as simple as that. But at its core, that's a fear. And first getting in touch with what are these these resistance-oriented drivers that keep us in motion, that's the first place to that that's the first place of awakening is acknowledging that there's a whole set of drivers that we're not, we don't want to be in touch with because they're scary and they're sometimes painful, but they're driving much of what we do. I think that's the first place to start. Right. And process. yeah, that makes perfect sense. So we start there and we examine that. And then how do we move forward from there? Well, you know, the examination tends to lead to this conundrum, which is, well, if, if all I do is react to fear, is there anything else? And I think, and then that tends to lead into a whole exploration of what does it mean to be human? You know, what does it mean to have an identity, to have this personality structure that we have? And for me, that exploration is in turn informed by the question of fear yet again, because the first reaction to that can be sort of a sad, scary one. Oh, I just, I'm just a bunch of reactions to fear or fear is at the root of most of my behavior or actions. And that's no fun. Something's wrong with that. And to say that something is wrong with that is itself an expression of fear, which gets to be explored as well. And I, I found, I have found that the more I explore the question, the deeper I go into the underlying mechanisms and behaviors that make up my identity, um, the more I can surrender to the fear in a way, allow the fear to be what it is, you know, allow my behaviors to come from wherever the heck that they come from. And I find that the more I surrender to the fear, the more peaceful I become. And the more peaceful I become, the more the activity of my life arises spontaneously and less driven by fear. Well, I know you're on a mission. And your <laughs> I mission. Know, I, I guess I am. I hope your I Your mission is to crush shame. <laughs> and so is how close is shame related to fear? Mm. Well, I, I think they're expressions of the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think a lot about shame. As you said, I've, I, I consider it my mission to crush it. It's, it's one way for me of exploring the concept of fear and shame is, um, you know, it's a useful, it, it serves a useful function in society. Shame is a way that we, um, structure the behavior of, of the rest of the, our participants in our communities. But ultimately shame is something, it's an experience, it's a feeling that we can only, cause for ourselves. You know, people can quote unquote shame us. They can try to cause us to feel a particular way that we've done something badly, but it's us who allow ourselves to feel the shame, right? It's not caused. It, it, it may be catalyzed outside, but it's allowed inside. And what it's essentially expressing is you know, the feeling of shame is essentially trying to express to the community at large, I know I did something wrong, I realize I shouldn't have, and I'm not going to do it anymore, but something is wrong with me. Which is, if you dig down through that, 
an abstraction of fear. It's, it's a, it's a mechanism by which we fit into society because we need to, because if we don't, there's danger. Right. So as we shed off all those layers of fear, we become the person we were really meant to be. I don't know about meant, but yes, we become something more fundamental, less strained, less challenged. You know, I, I, I don't know about big picture meaning because mm-hmm. that suggests God, you know, that suggests God, which is a, is a great way to experience the universe. It's not, I, I don't really have it that there's a God that has a plan that defines specifically who I'm supposed to be. But there is a more natural way that life unfolds when I surrender to and therefore let go of the fear that's driving my every behavior. Well, sexual intimacy is governed so much by fear, isn't it? Yes. I was just listening to one of your episodes and, you know, it's all about orgasmic meditation and it's called ooming. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very fascinating because that's about shedding off the layers in a way, isn't it? Oh, yes. I, I can't tell you how much a privilege it is to interview these couples who are on the cutting edge of their sexual exploration because of the exact reason. You know, it's so sex and, and, and I think money to agree to a degree are the two areas where we have the most fear and shame as human beings in our lives. And, you know, for people to go against the societal norms and explore what they really want sexually uh, it just takes so much courage. It just inspires me every time I get to hear about these people doing it. Yeah. And we better not keep it as a secret. We need to share with Mindful Tribe the name of your show and what that episode is. So oh, that, sure. So that you can go listen for yourself. Tell us. Well, so the name of the show is Together, a podcast about relationships. And uh, since you're giving me the opportunity to plug it, I'll tell you it's, uh, you can find it on our website, together.guide. Or you can listen to it on iTunes if you search together in any pretty much any podcast player. It'll come up. You'll see a picture of a kissing couple. And that's my show. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And you're referencing a particular episode uh, with a couple named Robert and Morgan uh, where they talk about their non-monogamous relationship, how they came to have a non-monogamous relationship, what it took for them to get there. And also this practice they have called OMING, which stands for orgasmic meditation, which is cross. It was similar to sex, but different than sex. Uh, but we've had a lot of couples on the show who have talked about non-monogamy or various non-traditional structures for their for their romance and for their sex lives. Um, yeah, it, and it's just so great. You know, I was. I, I think we mentioned it a moment ago, but th- there's this this function that seems to be happening in society or this this outcome of um, increased access to resources and financial safety that we're seeing, at least here in the West. Uh, and as a result, people are less dependent upon one another for their security. And mm-hmm. so I'm observing that people are becoming more willing to explore what they really want out of life. Oftentimes that expresses in their sexual lives. And so people are really pushing the envelope with romance. And it is, you know, it's not for everyone, but those for whom it is the right path, man, they are doing some great work. 
And you talk about many types of intimate relationships on your show, not not just heterosexual, right? That's right. Yeah, we we explore every, you know, the point of the show is really to illustrate the idea that we all, you know, we all know relationships take work, but we don't know what that work is and we don't know how to do it. And it turns out that most of us have the same challenges in our relationships, regardless of the configuration. If it's gay or straight or non-monogamous or traditionally religiously monogamous, or if you've got uh, multiple parties or if you've got parties who are transgender, it just doesn't matter. The cultural makeup, it doesn't matter. The fact is we're humans and we face the same challenges in our romantic relationships. And this, the, the ways that people have worked out to get through those challenges are, well, for me, they're an inspiration and they're, they're never ending. They're a never ending fascination for me. And so the show is an exploration of those. And it's a fascinating exploration. Let's talk about porn. I know that that's an area that, you know, people have a lot of questions. People have a lot of shame. People yeah. have, you know, and, and yet I know that there's, you know, a, a very high percentage of the population apparently engages in porn of some kind. Can porn help a relationship? That's one of the questions. <laughs> it can definitely, you know, I think porn can help or harm a relationship. Yes. Um, yeah, I, the, I, I have a, a good friend who's a, a mindfulness teacher and, uh, and a sex educator who just wrote an article called um, Ethical Porn and How It Can Save Your Relationship. And she essentially articulates the exact point that you're aiming at, which is, you know, if you approach porn from a healthy, aware mindset, it's just an opportunity to explore your sexuality. You know, on the other hand, if it's approached from if, if it's approached, I think, from a place of repression, mm -hmm. then it tends to foment more repression. You know, there's there's a way in which um, we repress our sexual needs and desires so strongly in this culture that um they tend to find unhealthy modes of expression because, you know, our true selves, whatever that really means, you know, our deepest desires are going to come out. They, you know, the more we repress them, the more they mutate, but they are going to come out and particularly around sex. And if, you know, if porn is simply the release valve for those repressed desires, I think it can become addictive. You know, and by addictive, I mean something that detracts from our experience of the rest of life, something that gets in the way of the rest of our lives, that we don't have any choice around, that we're, that we're somehow compelled to do. You know, and, and, if, and if porn is playing that role, I don't think it's porn's fault. I think it's the repression. It's, the, it's a function of the repression. And the opportunity is self-awareness is mindfulness. The opportunity is the self-expression around what we really need and want sexually, you know, and then, um, and then if you're, if you're using porn for that mechanism, it's fine. Or if you're using it to spice up the bedroom or if you're using it, you know, just for fun, it's fine. If it's an addiction, it's an addiction. Well, apparently 9% 
of people who watch porn become addicted. That's what it said in the article. There's the, but there's the, the, the stats. I don't know what they mean. Exactly. Did you say nine like, or 90? It said nine. Nine, which seems pretty low, I guess. It seems, it, but. Which, well, are you quoting Jessica's article? I believe that was the article. Oh, so you did see the article. That's good. Yes. I didn't know you were actually referencing it. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, she might be right. I don't, but I don't know what these stats actually mean. I, there's, because I'm skeptical of the stats around porn addiction because there's so much fluff on the internet about it. Yes. You know, there, there's so much, uh, maybe fluff is the wrong word. There's so much sensationalism, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so much fear and shame and anxiety, which leads to people writing sensational articles because they're clickbait and they get clicks and that gives mm-hmm. advertising. And, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, that kind of writing and that kind of thinking lends itself to, to superficial decision-making. There's a lot more to the, and so, and so I think people self-report that they're addicted because they haven't really explored the issue, you know, and, and I think it's easy also to say that porn is immoral. I think porn is an easy target for politicians or for people who want to have a public voice because people are just going to check that box. Oh, of course, porn is immoral. But when we really, really explore it, when we really inquire, is it immoral? I'm not so sure. It's a nuanced conversation. It's worthy of discussing, but it shouldn't be a knee jerk. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's very interesting subject. And when it comes to mindfulness, and porn. I mean, I think you just need to be aware of the moment, just like mindfulness is being aware of the moment and trying to be aware of those layers that we talked about earlier. Yes. And, you know, not be thinking, you know, hey, this is evil necessarily, or this is just, you know, you just need to just kind of, like you say, allow or surrender and know what you're feeling and experiencing. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, ex- exactly. Explore your internal experience as deeply as possible so that you can better understand the mechanisms that are driving behavior. And if that behavior is unfe- unhealthy, then you need to explore more deeply. But maybe right. the behavior is perfectly healthy. Right. So from the standpoint of your experience with relationships, why do some relationships last while others don't? What are some of the main reasons? Oh, that's the $10 million question. Yeah. Well, okay. So there are the, I will call them excuses. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a dismissive term. There are the surface level reasons that people give for relationships ending. Um, I was doing all the work. He never understood me. She didn't respect me. We had disagreements over child rearing. We had disagreements over money, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. infidelity. Sort of the standard excuses that you hear over and over. I'm agnostic as to whether those matter. I, I think they're a good access point to a discussion about what's really going on. And what I find tends to really be going on is that we are all in the process of projecting our unresolved internal traumas, if you will, 
the metaphors for our internal fears that express in the real world onto one another. And in doing so, we're essentially scapegoating one another for the unresolved issues in our own unconscious or our own deeper identity. And that is how we create distance. And that's what leads to breakup. You know, most breakups, if it's a relationship with two healthy people who could have a good enough relationship are simply, and I don't want to be dismissive because I know these are very painful and difficult, but oftentimes they're the result of scapegoating of internal, of of internal traumas on one another. And I find, which leads to my conclusion that oftentimes, uh, Relationships can be saved if the parties want to save them by uh, by doing the deep internal personal work. Right. I was just going to say, so if we can truly get to know ourselves better, then we can probably make our relationships better, save our relationships if we want to. Like you say, sometimes we don't want to save those relationships. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's what I'm agnostic about. You know, if if the relationship that you're in is expressing itself in a way that crosses boundaries and you're just not willing, if if you're just not willing to touch those limits, fine, it's okay. There's always another opportunity in this life to do deep personal work, you know, and and I'm agnostic to whether relationships stay together or don't. What I'm interested in is self-awareness around the relationships. You know, plenty of good relationships do end and that's okay plenty of bad relationships and that could have been good. That's okay. Whatever could have means really. I mean, you know, that leads down a whole other rabbit hole because who knows what could have been, what is, is what is. And that's, that's the insight that mindfulness leads us to. Um, but I, I think at each moment in a relationship, each moment is a decision point. And if it's a fundamentally workable, okay, healthy relationship, um, each moment is a decision point of uh, choosing self-inquiry or not, uh, choosing uh, more depth and understanding and intimacy or not. And uh, again, I'm agnostic as to which you choose, but the path to long-term, you know, the path to the relationships that we all say that we want where couples have been together for 50 years and their intimacy continues to increase. And for some reason, though their bodies are getting older, sex continues to get better and their love continues to blossom, even though they're not in that first year honeymoon phase. Those relationships are the result of continual personal exploration. Do you meditate? Is that how you help to explore yourself personally? I do, but I'll confess, um, I don't have a practice. Uh, meditation for me is what I've been echoing this whole conversation. For me, it's a process of allowing the universe to be as it is. Um, and I find myself doing that all day. Uh, sometimes I'll, uh, be in the, in the midst of a conversation and pause and just allow the world to be as it is. Um, sometimes I'll sit in a more traditional way for, half an hour or an hour, but I don't personally get a ton of value from forcing myself to sit when it doesn't, you know, like exercise and somehow that doesn't work for me. 
Um, but throughout the day, I'm finding myself coming back to that question. What's true? What's true? Who am I? What's true? And breathing into that question. Um, so that's how meditation expresses for me. And how about answering the question, what do I want? Is that a question you ask yourself? That one leads me down a rabbit hole that isn't useful for my identity. When I ask that question, I go down a whole egoic pathway that doesn't usually provide value. Um, yeah, that opens up a door that doesn't usually work for me. Who, who am I? Who am I brings peace. It centers me. What do I want gets into mind chatter, I guess, is a way to put it for me. Okay. Yeah. Does that work for you? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Can you, yeah. can you tell me about that? Cause I'm, I'm very curious. I mean, I've heard that before and, but it always leads me down a different pathway. Well, I think a lot of, a lot of people that I've met and that I know, and some of the people that I coach, they, they truly don't know what they want. And if I say to them, look, if you had all the money or all the time and you could just do anything you want, what would you do? Uh, and they're like, geez, I really don't know. I don't know what I'd do. And I think that sometimes you just need to take the time to think about, hey, what do I really, truly enjoy? What do I really want to have in my life? Because once I truly know that, then I can go after it and it'll probably become part of my life. Mm. Now that I can get. And if, if I, if you will allow me, I'll put it into sure. uh, the way I see the universe, uh, which is, it seems to me that by asking the question, if you could have anything you wanted or if money were no object or whatever barrier you have in your way, weren't the case, then what would you do or want or have? is a great way to imagine ourselves in a world without fear. Right. Um, so putting that in the sort of in the way I articulate the, the universe, um, which obviously isn't the only way to do it, but uh, it's a great way to leap over the fear question, which is a kind of meditation, you know, in, in a world without fear, what arises and in a world without fear, how looking back on this world, what do we learn about our fears and about ourselves? So I, I, that I can totally get. I really love that approach. That sounds really useful. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I think it can really help people clarify where they're headed and gives them direction and focus. And then they feel a lot more grounded as yeah. a result of it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yep, I definitely get that. And I, what I was saying before is that what I wanted usually came out of the chitter-chatter of mind, which in the way I hold the universe stems out of my all my strategies and desires and responses to fear. Like if, if this root of fear is at the core, then I've built this personality around avoiding it in different ways. And most of the things that I think I want stem from that, which for me is not, not a satisfying way to live, you know? And so I, I've tried to, and in many ways succeeded in breaking that paradigm and living from a different place, 
which is much harder to articulate. And I don't know what it is, but what want the idea of what I want gets articulated in a different way. Now it's more, more along the lines of what seems to be naturally happening. And I, I know that sounds wishy-washy because it doesn't sound directive. It doesn't sound real, but it's much more fruitful. You know, this podcast, this magazine, um, my relationship with my life partner, my, my, that's a weird way to put it. My fiance, um, you know, all of these things that are so valuable in my life now have arisen from that place, have arisen from, as opposed to trying to force something to happen mm. because I was scared of some outcome. And I thought that in order to be loved by the people around me, I needed to have money. So I'd better work at this particular job and blah, 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 blah. You know, instead of going that route, I've just allowed the universe to unfold. And when something arises that calls to me, I go for it. Um, and that's, that's how everything seems to be manifesting now. That, that is really, really terrific that you're able to express it that way. And I, and I'm just thinking, you know, when you look back and you were living a different life and it was, you know, you were earning the money, you were a top lawyer and so on. How did you get to that point of allowing that point of surrendering and just (laughs) kind of letting go? I mean, is there any you know, one or two things you can say about that? Well, I lost everything. Yeah. <laughs> I just lost everything. It's the best. Yeah. I, we, you know, our law firm was quite successful. We'd built the largest and fast grow, fastest growing family law firm in the Bay area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were, we were doing very well. And, uh, my partner was up to some hijinks. One thing led to another. We lost everything. And in the wake of that, you know, in the self-reflection of what I had done wrong and what kind of a person I was, in the wake of that was an immense amount of depression and anger and hopelessness. You know, how could I have worked so hard for 10 years and poured my life into this thing that, frankly, I didn't even enjoy and end up with nothing? And that, that... Anger, fear, depression phase lasted for months, uh, eight or nine months. Um, and, but at the same time during that phase, I felt, I felt the sense that something old was burning away. You know, I, 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 I sort of cherish depression now. Uh, depression seems like such an opportunity to see through, uh, self created illusion. And, you know, when that anger and fear passed, I, I was left with this extraordinary sense of peace and well-being and realized that it stemmed from not having to live up to any external measure anymore or, or even self-created measure. You know, I, I had worked so hard and, and, and dedicated myself entirely to this particular end, which ended in disaster. And it left me with a blank, a beautiful blank canvas that I could create anything with. And from there, uh, I started to explore all that we've been talking about throughout the show. And it's, it's a very peaceful place to, um, to have that freedom, you know? Yeah. You sound like you're in a peaceful place. Oh, uh, yeah. (laughs) 
And, you know, you said eight or nine months, you know, it lasted for months, eight or nine months. And yet I think for some people it would last for the rest of their lives. Mm, I hope, I hope not. Mm, I see what you're saying. But I think, I think so though. I think, I think sadly some people have, like they go through difficulties like that and they never discover what you did. They yeah. just remain in this place where they just don't know how to crawl out of it. Well, I alluded to an insight that occurred during that time earlier, which was, let's see if I can express it in a way that makes sense. The, the depression itself, the feeling of depression itself was trying to serve a purpose you know, a purpose of self-awareness, like the feeling of sadness. Okay. There's two things happening simultaneously. One is that feelings arise. We have our feelings, you know, we have sadness and happiness and anxieties and all different stripes, good and bad. And the, the common wisdom today, which is right, is let's allow ourselves to have our feelings. You know, that's, and that's a part of mindfulness too. Yes, it um, is. Mark the feelings, uh, allow them. And, and in the allowing of the feelings, we find that they tend to pass through, you know, feelings are temporary right. and in some sense they're, they are an experience, but they're not the quote unquote truth. You know, they're a passing to be had for me. The lasting, that, the, the sadness and the hopelessness was an experience to be had. It started to become a habit as opposed to a passing experience. It started to become a default way of being. And when I got very honest with myself through the process of writing, by the way, which is how I kept organized in my thinking. Mm-hmm. And I got very honest with myself with regards to that habit. I noticed that the negative view of the universe that I had created, the negative view of my partner's behavior in our law firm, the negative view of the tax code, of how difficult it is to raise money for a business, of how hard it is, you know, whatever, the weather this negative view that I had, this victimization that I had created was my new way of being safe in the universe. Okay. You know, it had become my new cosmology. It had become the new way that I knew that the universe operated. I know the universe works this way and at least I can predict that. And on some unconscious level that was, you know, understanding the universe to be that way gave me an out for behavior for consequences and it made me safe. I guess you could say the payoff of being depressed was this kind of quasi safety, this false safety. Right. And when I saw that seeing the mechanism at work gave me the opportunity to choose a different mechanism to operate from seeing that I was really just trying to be safe in a universe where either safety isn't relevant or there is no safety. It's one or the other. I don't particularly know which, but seeing that I was chasing 
this shimmera of safety through this really dubious mechanism of being unhappy. I mean, how ironic is that? <laughs> to tr- be safe by being miserable. It's really what it comes yeah. down to. It's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it's just ridiculous when you, when you see it. Yes. Um, seeing that mechanism gave me the opportunity to choose a different way of living. And that's when I stepped into what I now think of as this peaceful phase of allowing the universe to be as it is safe or not. Yeah, I I love the way you've described it. And I never heard anybody say before, I cherish depression, (laughs) you know, and, and the way you've explained it now, it really does make sense. And it is all about allowing, all about surrendering and being able to do that. Then it allows you to move on. Yeah. Which is what you've been able to do. Have you ever felt as though you talked about victimization have you ever felt like you were bullied did you feel like you were bullied by your partner or did you feel like you were bullied at any time in your life yes for sure i I, i'll make a distinction between what i think is true and my identity's experience of of my past right uh my identity has it that when i was a kid i was a nerd and i was bullied and um uh, my identity has it that I was often betrayed by people who were close to me. Um, and when I was younger, it was because it was how they became cool kids was by beating up on the dork. And when I was older, for some reason, I think it was a pattern I was creating. Um, but it all fit into this rubric, this, uh, view of how the world worked and how I fit into the world that, uh, ultimately I was going to be betrayed by the people close to me. Um, and that expressed, and, and that's a way to put that as, is bullying. It certainly was a bullying mechanism when I was a kid. The truth is, I, I, the truth is I don't think that's the case anymore. The truth is, you know, there were experiences and I interpreted them through a particular lens cause I, I have a mind and my mind is limited. The truth is something much greater. But yeah, my experience through a lot of my life was resisting bullying. It doesn't have any truck with me anymore, but it it sure did. Yeah. So having said that, I hear you saying that, you know, you almost manifested some of this possibly. I think definitely. I I know it's an edgy thing to say to people who are experiencing something they don't like. But yeah, I'm I'm clear that I manifested it. So then the natural question is, as you moved forward in adulthood and you had your, your successful business, looking back, do you feel you manifested the situation with your partner? Yeah, for sure. He was just part of the, you know, he was part of that narrative. Right. Um, you know, being a, a successful lawyer who got to wear a suit every day with a fancy pocket square and went to red carpet events and, you know, was on lots of charity boards and went to galas all the time. That guy, that guy, that identity that I lived for a decade here in San Francisco, which is a great city to do that in, was all in response to the fear of being unloved, which expressed itself as being abandoned by and betrayed by those close to me and by being bullied. Right. It, it, it was all a way to avoid that, you know. And the beauty of that realization is that it lets me choose, you know, because I, 
now I can throw on a pocket square and a suit. I still have got them in my closet. Uh, and I can go to those same events. I still know those same people. And I can do it from a place of choice, from full self-expression, from desire. Right. Whereas before I was doing it from a place of reactivity to that deep-rooted, unresolved fear. Right. And now I'm not attached to avoiding the fear anymore. Right. That makes sense. I'm not trying to avoid the fear with my whole heart and soul anymore. That makes sense. Eric, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Oh. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Okay. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness? My mom. Here. I wonder how often you hear that. My mom. Yes. Not too often, but that's, <laughs> that's cool. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Eric? They're less terrifying. My emotions now happen and pass through and I can enjoy them fully for what they are, the good and the bad. Um, I'm less attached to avoiding them. I'm less attached to seeking the good and avoiding the bad. I allow both much more frequently. And tell us how breathing might be a part of your mindfulness. Uh, breathing is a great remind. <laughs> breathing is a great way to, to uh, what's the word for that? Occupy mind. Yes. I find that focus on breath allows mind to have something to do so that being can be. It's when mind's chitter chatter is, is quieted for a moment, is occupied with something other than immediate experience that being can unfold for me. Um, oftentimes I'll use breath to calm and quiet mind to allow the universe to settle. Eric, if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Your Brain on Sex by Dr. Stan Siegel. Actually, I don't know if he's a doctor. By Stan Siegel. He's a sex therapist. He is the most edgy, the number one most profoundly groundbreaking thinker that I know of on the topic of uh, being aware of your own sexual self. Uh, he's he's a force to be reckoned with, and I'm so grateful for for his work, Stan Siegel. Cool, thanks for that. And do you have an app which you could share? Do you use an app which helps you to be more mindful? I have to say, I think all the apps make me less mindful. Than right, I <laughs> that's fair enough, and I certainly get that. <laughs> but some people swear by apps that you know, hey, this is how I get to my mindfulness. That's great. I don't even. I don't. I didn't know such things existed. Yes, uh, they do exist, and some people just love them, and uh, others are like you. It's like, yeah, my way is to turn off. Anything that even reeks of technology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I blessings to them all. I mean, I, I try to walk this knife's edge of being in the world of everything, technology and desire and anger and the whole bit of it and also be mindful at the same time. So for me, I'll often do a practice of reading news about things that make me angry, this recent election, for example, and be mindful at the same time. Um, that's the cutting edge for me. So that, that's how I use it. I think if we could help more people be mindful, Eric, then maybe we would see things differently in response to this election. I'm not in your country, so I'm looking <laughs> down on it, seeing it as an outsider. 
But don't you think mindfulness could help us with that? Oh, for sure. Just as I mentioned that I cherish uh, depression, I, I cherish anger and fear and and challenges. And uh, you know, the election is is such a beautiful, extraordinary opportunity for self-awareness because it puts in such perfect contrast the attachment that we all have to our belief sets. You know, we really, each of us, whichever side we each voted on, we really believe that we made the best decision and that we were right and the other side just doesn't get it. Yes. And we have so much anger and anxiety around our decision and the opposing decision of others. It's this, it's this wonderful opportunity to be more self-aware about our own decision matrix, our own flawed, untrue perspectives, and then to step into the universe of everybody else around us, because that's how we create intimacy. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental rule in relationships. You create intimacy by stepping into the universe of the people around you and allowing all the ugliness of your own perspective and theirs to come out and standing in it anyway. That's how you create depth with somebody. That's the practice in relationships and it applies outside of romantic relationships and applies in the political context as well. And nobody's doing it right now. This is a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, that's very, very wise. I love what you just said. And, you know, in this discussion, I thought we'd be talking more about sex. And it's funny because in order to really achieve awesome sex and intimacy, you don't really have to talk about sex. Yeah. We're talking about something else. It's all about fear. It's all about all these other things we've been discussing. Yeah. Eric, how can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do and connect with you? Well, come check me out. Listen to the podcast, read our magazine articles. All of that is available at together.guide. That's G-U-I-D-E. That's actually a domain extension. Uh, together.guide is our website. That's where you can uh, reach out to me if you want to chat with me. I love hearing. I love hearing from listeners. And I would be so honored if anybody would listen to the podcast and let me know what they think. Well, I know what I think. I think it's just awesome. I think it's a great way of growing and and learning. And and that's everything I love to do. So I highly recommend your podcast and your and your website. It's just great, Eric. And thank you so much for being here. I'm honored to have you on the show. Bruce, it was a pleasure. Uh, really, thanks for having me and thanks for sticking with me through the conversation, which, you know, has its highs and lows, I know. <laughs> well, great talking with you. You have a great rest of your day, Eric. Thanks, Bruce. You too. Bye now. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.